Hey, thanks for leading us, uh, all the musicians and singers. Great job. Wonderful to sing together. Yeah, that's... You guys have got a lot of talented folks, just every, new folks up here every time. So, like, does everybody here play or sing? I don't know. <laughs> kind of a... No, okay. Somebody said over there, out of tune, said it. Uh, so, well, uh, it again, it's great to be with you. I hope you had a good afternoon. I hope you had some time to enjoy companionship and growing, uh, you know, together, whether you took in a, a hike or a nap or whatever you did, a conversation. I hope it was encouraging, uh, encouraging for you. And uh, I'm just going to continue on tonight from where we were this morning. I don't have, a, you know, the same kind of intro that I did this morning, other than to say, just to review, that we're, we're talking about the idea that, um, that we want to know our why, what is our purpose for marriage, and we see that in the grand storyline, the great narrative of the Bible, the overarching theme of the Bible, which we can see in the creation, the fall, the redemption, and the consummation. Or as we said, you know, those kind of little catch words, those are really helpful to me. I don't know if they are to you, but I just keep repeating them because they're helpful to me. Ought is, can, will. So uh, creation is life the way it ought to be, the way God planned it. The fall is life the way it is, the way we have it. Um, Redemption is life the way it can be, with the power of Christ, um, you know, changing us. And then the consummation is life the way it will be, uh, ultimately in the new heaven and new earth. But tonight we're going to talk about the is. Uh, we talked about the ought. Now we're going to talk about the is, the uh, brokenness of marriage. And uh, it's a little heavy to talk about the brokenness of marriage. We're going to talk about the faults. Like, you know, maybe the uh, most tragic well, I guess it is the most tragic chapter in the Bible. I don't know what else would be uh, more tragic than the fall because it's because of the fall that everything's messed up. Everything's jacked up because of the fall. Everything about you, everything about me, everything about the world we live in. So I thought rather than just starting super sober, I read this article and all it was was a compilation of tweets, you know, from Twitter, things people had posted on Twitter about marriage. And uh, it's not Christian or anything like that, but Uh, But I just thought some of the things, I thought, okay, yeah, this shows what marriage is really like. And I hope this is helpful. I'll I'll enjoy it if no one else does. And you get a certain age where it doesn't matter if anybody else enjoys it. You're just like, if I'm having a good time in my own mind, in my own head, if I (laughs) thought that was funny, it doesn't matter if anybody else does. But uh, so it's not that I'm overly secure. It's that I'm overly old and just don't give a rip. So anyway, um, yeah, okay, here's an old guy giving me an amen there. So. Okay, here's some various tweets on marriage that were just compiled uh, together. One guy tweeted, My pregnant wife asked for an Oreo, so I brought her a single Oreo. Apparently, this was a gross miscalculation on my part. This lady's musing about uh, about a new competition, a cooking competition show. She says, A cooking competition where contestants make whatever they want but my husband wanders around the kitchen and stands in front of the drawer that they need. And the guy, now that was funny to me because I do that all the time. My wife's doing something and so I'm just talking, excuse me, can I get to that? I'm always in the wrong spot at, uh, at the wrong time. Uh, somebody tweeted, uh, my husband is taking up extra space in our closet because he likes his boxer briefs on clip hangers. Please don't talk to me about your problems, she says. (laughs) Yeah, oh man, okay. Uh, My wife just told me her birthday is tomorrow. Like, wow, maybe give me more of a heads up next time. (laughs) Oh yeah, there's some groans, some ladies are groaning. It's broke, marriage is broken, okay? We live in the, the, the fallen world. I'm just giving you some proof here. It says, dating. Wanna share a strawberry smoothie? Marriage, quit holding your coffee mug so loudly. (laughs) Does change, doesn't it? Um, My husband, oh, here's one about this. I wanted to share this one because this is complementarity. This is one flesh. This is um, companionship. This is actually, this isn't the fall. This is the beginning. This is Genesis 2. She says, my husband and I are going on a cross-country road trip. I'm in charge of snacks and entertainment. He's in charge of, quote, driving straight through and, quote, beating the GPS time. (laughs) 
Clearly, we both know our strengths in this relationship. I don't know about you, but there's few things more rewarding in life. When it says the trip is two hours and 21 minutes, and I see it go back two hours and 20. I've gained a minute. I just love beating the GPS, uh, GPS time is, and try to be as legal as I can in doing so, but uh, I love that. Husband, you never listen to me. Wife, pizza sounds great, hon. <laughs> yep, there you, there you go. That, usually that's, flip, that's, a, that's a flipped one. A couple more for you about the fallenness of marriage. Um, my wife left a bunch of hair on the shower wall, so to get back at her, I fasted for two days and lost seven pounds. <laughs> I think the joke is it comes off easier for men. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know, but... Um, Oh, somebody talked about driving conversations. This lady tweeted, my husband and I now have an app that tells us if the garage door is open or closed, and this effectively gets rid of 90% of conversation during car rides, <laughs> which is kind of sad, right? But all you talk, did, no, I did close it. Are you sure? Yeah. Kind of sad that that would be the case. Um, oh, this is a true one about the brokenness of marriage and the brokenness of companionship and one flesh relationship there are people who set their ac to 75 degrees and people who set theirs to 60 degrees and then they marry each other so i don't know if you have uh, conversations in the house about temperatures but they sure do uh, mine this guy tweets my wife still brings up that one time in 2013 i was indecisive about which shirt to wear after her water broke so that was kind of a, a, a problem. <laughs> Trust you're following that. Um, and last but not least, um, even after 15, this lady, even after 15 years of marriage, my husband still can't take his eyes off me when I'm backing the car out of the driveway. <laughs> so I don't know if that's an issue in your marriage or not. <laughs> But just a few uh, light things to help us think about that marriage really is, is broken, except for the car ride where she had the entertainment and he had the drive straight through. But besides that, usually uh, we all face challenges and differences and, in our marriages, and we all know that. That's one reason we're here. If it was Genesis 2, we don't need a marriage retreat, but because it's uh, after Genesis 3, we do. So... Uh, Tonight, I want to talk about this uh, in your outline. I looked at your outline now. That God's story begins with creation, where we see life as it ought to be. But the age of ought doesn't last for very long. Genesis 3 comes along, and it, there is this cosmic shakeup that changes everything. The perfect shalom, which is life as it ought to be. It's the peace of God that Adam and Eve uh, enjoyed. They rebelled against him and shattered the shalom. It, their, their, their relationship with God uh, was broken apart. Their relationship with one another was broken apart. Their relationship with the environment they lived in was broken apart as well as they rejected God's benevolent, benevolent rule. Uh, that is the fall. And the fall was not only a historical event, it was, but it's a supra-historical event as well. It's, a, it's, it's more than history because it, it explains everything that's wrong in the world today. It, it, it explains what's wrong in our relationships. Prior to Genesis 3, companionship was, it, Adam and Eve flowed together perfectly, flawlessly, uh, in their relationship. But after chapter 3, we don't always have the same unity of purpose in our marriages. We don't see things the same way in our marriages. Um, to have openness and transparency, as it said, they were naked and not ashamed, uh, that was a given then. That is not as easy today as well. What we know commonly are experiences of selfishness, and blame and striving for control of the relationship. Those are things we're going to look at in the chapters in Genesis 3 today. So if Genesis 1 and 2 is marriage the way it ought to be, Genesis 3, marriage the way it is. We all get these glimpses of Genesis 1 and 2, these glorious moments and experiences where we just feel so blessed in our marriage and things are working so well uh, where we are either in the honeymoon phase or revisiting the honeymoon phase. Those are glimpses that we get, and yet we all live under the daily sort of crushing weight of Genesis 3, not just in our marriage, but in, every, in our work, in our health, 
um, in, in, our, in our finances, uh, in our emotions. In every part of life, there's just always the crushing weight of Genesis 3. So today, we're going we're gonna to consider how our covenant companionship is tested because of the fall. So Genesis 3, the fall, really has two, well, three, we'll, we'll call it three sections. There's the temptation, which I'm going to look at briefly, and then there is the fall where they actually eat and hide uh, from God. And then there's the, there are the curses, which God pronounces upon the serpent, the man, and the woman. And those curses have a lot to say about our marriages. Um, you know, it's really important, I think, to consider that. So we're going to really spend tonight Genesis 3 looking at starting with the temptation. You know, the Bible, uh, chapter 3, uh, has a very ominous introduction because Genesis 1-1 begins, as you know, it begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Genesis 3 begins, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So it's ominous. It goes from this glorious creation to some kind of lurking creature that is crafty and is coming to tempt the couple. And in verses 1 through 7, uh, we really see sort of the nature of temptation. I don't want to camp on this, but I think this is helpful because we all face sort of these temptations. And then the last temptation I'm going to look at in, in some detail because I think it's very real in our marriages. So the, the nature of temptation is that the serpent first asked in verse 1, uh, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? So the first temptation is to question God's word, to question God's goodness. He says to them, did God actually say you can't eat from any of the trees, he's implying that God's not good, that God's restricting something from you. When actually God said, I've provided all this abundance, you can eat from any tree but one. But Satan will always come and tempt us to think that God is not good. He wants to undermine the character of God and his word in our minds so that we look in another direction. Number two, there's an adding to God's word. So Eve engages the snake, which she shouldn't, but she does, and and uh, she actually adds to God's word. So verse two, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. God didn't say you can't touch it. Eve adds that this is the first legalism in the whole Bible. Legalism is when you create a law or a rule to keep you from sinning. So in other words, if this is the mark of sin, I create a rule back up here so I don't get over there. And that's what she does. God said, you may not eat of the fruit. And she says, no, no, you, God said, you can't even touch it. So I'm a legalist. I'm gonna go back here so then I never get over to the fruit. I never eat of it if I don't even touch it. So she adds to God's word. Um, next, there is a denial of God's word. Uh, verse three, the serpent says to her, um, I'm sorry, verse four, the serpent said, you shall not surely die, uh, for God knows, okay, you shall not surely die. He just, uh, he just denies that God will follow up and do what he said. He, his denial is uh, around the topic of judgment. You won't be judged, and that's the way people respond to today. How could a loving God send anyone to hell? Uh, God's word is denied at its point of judgment. We don't want to believe there's an accountability Next, Satan replaces God's word. So Eve kind of adds to it. He denies the judgment, and then he replaces it with a, a false promise, a, a substitute promise. This is in your outline in verse 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the heart of Satan's temptation, his deception is, you will be like God. And since that moment, you know, since they sin, after when they sin, and, the fall, and since the fall, that has been the temptation that we all face, to want to rule our own lives, to make our own decisions autonomously from God. That's what he's coming and saying, and saying, look, he, he replaces God's word with a new promise. Here's the reality. If you, you know, go ahead and eat, God knows that you will be like him and doesn't want you to be like him. And so you, there's this great opportunity for you to 
know good and evil, to basically deny God and be your own God. The fall teaches that the root of everything wrong in the world is a rejection of God's word. Since we have, since the fall, we've all wrestled with autonomy. We want to do what we want to do, and that infects our marriages, uh, really, in a significant way. Lastly, there is a rejection of God's word. So they eat, and then there is the devastating results. Their eyes are opened. Uh, Verse 7 says that after their eyes are opened, they knew they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loin cloths. So God had given them tremendous freedom. They could eat of anything he provided abundantly. Absolute perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship as a couple, perfect relationship with the creation so that they could work the ground uh, and it produced fruit abundantly. All this happened uh, presumably flawlessly and uh, gloriously. So they lived in paradise, but they did not want to submit to God. They wanted to do what they, they wanted to control. They didn't want the story of God to be the controlling factor. They wanted to control and, uh, and do what they wanted to do. Uh, and I think that's a very real temptation today, the temptation to control. That's really what it is. I don't want to live under God's control. I want my eyes open to be open to good and evil, knowing good and evil, so that I can sort of make my own way and do what I want to do. Um, the temptation to control. You know, I put in your notes that <clears throat> often we, I think we minimize this desire. I think it's at the heart of the first temptation, but I think we minimize this. You know, we'll say very flippantly sometimes, well, you know, I'm just a controlling person, as if that's a mild character flaw. That's really the heart of the first temptation and the first sin. I don't want to live in a world that God controls. I don't want to be subject to him. I want to control my own life and the way things go. And I want the knowledge of good and evil. I want that fruit so I can do what I want to do. That's really the heart. It's a grasping for God's throne to control. We want our own way. Does that, does that sound familiar to you at all? Maybe you say, maybe you say, I've said that. I said, well, I'm just a controlling a controlling person. And I just want to point out to us that when we feel that way, that is, that is a significant issue. And it, 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 is, it is one of the things that will hinder our growth and companionship and can really bring great difficulty to a marriage. <clears throat> we can seek to control people and situations, including our spouse. We can seek to control through manipulation, through self-pity, uh, through deception, through anger, that sometimes anger in a marriage is so that I get my way, I make my point, and I then get my own way, exerting our own power. So rather than preferring our spouse, we want our spouse to do what we want to do, so we act in a way that sort of exerts some kind of control. When we don't get our way sometimes, we can respond by either clamming up and not saying anything, that's a controlling kind of a thing. I want, to, I want you to respond to me. Or we can blow up. I've heard it said that way. You know, you don't get your way, you clam up or you blow up. Those are both ways that are sinful responses to me not having things go the way I want them to go. So I will, in self-pity, or to punish you through my silence, or to let you know something's wrong around here, uh, rather than addressing it, naked and unashamed, not literally naked, but addressing, you know what I'm saying, openly and unashamed, uh, I, I, I want control. And so there's some kind of manipulation that can happen. When we don't have control in our lives uh, or in our marriage or with one of our children or in our job, sometimes we can experience anxiety or fear or worry. Oftentimes, um, those are the fruit of not feeling out of control in the situation. I want to be able to control uh, my finances. I want to be able to control other people's responses to me. I want to be able to control the employees at work or control my boss. Uh, And I want to be able to control my spouse. In other words, life will go great if she will act the way I want her to act and stop acting the way I don't want her to act. Then life will be good. And so there can be a subtle temptation. Rather than submit myself to the Lord and walk in the principles of Scripture, of seeking to walk openly, 
uh, humbly, um, listening, preferring her, caring, all these kinds of things, we can act in various sinful ways to get, get control. And this is a daily challenge. You know, Satan basically said, instead of worshiping God, why don't you take an idol and worship an idol and said, and the idol is me. That, that's probably the most powerful idol that any of us bow our knees to is the idol of me. And that's what's really going on here. Don't submit to God's word. He's not going to judge you. I mean, you know, don't worry about that. He's hiding something from you. So you put yourself in the center of your life, of your marriage, and everything else. But it's a constant temptation. On a book on idolatry, I found this quote that I, I thought was really helpful. It was on a chapter on the me idol and the author said, in my brokenness, I feel the pull to worship me. I hear the whispered lie that Adam and Eve first heard. Your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. Why serve? You rule. You have everything you need to be your own God. Every day is a trip to that orchard. Every day the snake is waiting. I must face this same choice. Will I worship God and find my true place in his universe? the perfect place that he has arranged for me? Or will I worship me and decide I can somehow come up with a better life than the creator of all could design? That is a challenge that's a result of the fall. That temptation rings for us. Well, the fall, they actually eat, and they, as I said in verse 7, they clothe themselves with fig leaves. Verse 8, they hear a sound in the garden, and it's the Lord in the cool of the day a walking to them. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees, verse 8 says. Verse 9, but the Lord God, God called to the man and said to him, where are you? So he comes to bring judgment, but it has all the marks of mercy and grace. What does he do? He gives them an opportunity to identify themselves, to confess their sin. He gives them an opportunity to step forward out of hiding, out of the darkness, and acknowledge openly before God but what they do are two things they're they're hiding uh, and then they start blaming so two results immediate results of the fall before God and before one another is hiding and blaming it's the first two things that happen after the fall verse 10 says that Adam confesses that upon hearing God's approach he hid himself because he was naked and afraid that's what he says I hid myself because I was naked and afraid. That's what sin will always do. Sin loves darkness. Sin loves hiding. Sin flourishes in the dark. It's the reason I gave the little comments I did about um, challenges in, in the sexual relationship this morning because that's a difficult topic to talk about, to get help on perhaps, and it just thrives, not sin, I'm talking about the sexual relationship, in darkness, um, problems always fester and get worse now if there is some kind of sexual lust issues or whatever that 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 flourishes in darkness as well we need to bring those things to the light not only with their fig leaves are they hiding from God but they're also ultimately hiding from one another here's how tragic the fall is we read verse one now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the immediate verse before Satan is introduced is, we read it this morning, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. And the serpent was, the, uh, was more crafty than any other beast that the Lord has made. And now, uh, you know, 10 verses later, they are hiding from God and ultimately hiding from one another the fig leaves are not just because God's coming they're hide they're naked and they are I mean I'm sorry they're clo they're covered and they are ashamed they're they're covered in shame because of their sin before one another they no longer think about this they no longer experience the blessing of transparency when there was no sin transparent before God transparent before one another sin comes in they immediately hide and don't want to be seen for who they are. They feel uncomfortable being known for who they are. And because of the fall, we need to realize every one of us, by nature, default towards hiding from God and hiding from others. That's, uh, that's the natural inclination. You know, sometimes I think about this more as a parent, or something, I, I can't believe, you know, 
I can put up with a lot of things with my children, but she lied to me. Well, Genesis 3 says that's very natural. It's not good, it's bad. But that's the very natural response to being found out. It's a way to hide and to protect ourselves. And so we do that in marriage too. We think if she really knew me, if I told her what's really going on, if I shared with my wife what's really going on, what would she think about me? She, would, she might judge me. Uh, she, might, she, she, you know, she, she might be angry with me. She might reject me. See, sin in the darkness lies. I know my wife wouldn't reject me. She's got 36 years of demonstrating she won't reject me. But lie in the darkness, I think, oh, no, well, if I share this thing that I did or that I thought, uh, you know, if I really open up myself, what, what will she think? That, that was not the way it was before the fall. Knowledge is power now. So now we avoid vulnerability because knowledge is power. If, if the wife can think, if he knows this about me, it may come back to hurt me in the future. You know, the, the Miranda writes, anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. And that's how we feel. If I say this, this may come back on me. If I tell the full thing, it may come back on me. So we cover ourselves. And even in marriage, we can sort of try to manage our image. You know, there's maybe, maybe we rip the fig leaf in half. It's not all there, but there's still, we're still going to cover ourselves to some degree to hide ourselves. This is, the fall was a devastating blow to companionship because the vulnerability, which was a joy, becomes a risk. The transparency becomes a thing of fear. And the reality of who we are is now something we manage with fig leaves and getting back in the bushes so God doesn't see. And my wife, she can't fully see me, right? We want to hide who we are rather than be vulnerable and real. Any number of reasons we can, we can do this. My wife made a comment. to My wife says very encouraging things to me. I'm telling you a second critique she brought of me. But she says encouraging things too, you know, 100 to 1 probably. But she said to me something this summer that was, uh, it was an over-the-top statement that she was making. It was, in, it was a uh, hyperbole, uh, but it got my attention and it was making a point. I can't remember the, sake, the nature of the conversation, but I don't know that I'll ever forget her line. She said, uh, she said to me, you know what? I feel like I don't really know you. I'm like, I'm the guy in the jeans and the plaid shirt. You know what I mean? No, but what she meant by that was, okay, we're in a time right now where, where something's going on, a situation, and I feel like you're not really telling me your real true thoughts and feelings and how it's affecting you. And in this moment, like, who are you is what she was kind of saying to me. Now, she obviously feels like she knows me and we have great communication. But in that moment, in that season, in that event, it was, what she was saying to me was, I feel like you're in the bushes with a fig leaf over your heart, you know, covering who you are. And I don't really know who you are. Just step out and tell me what's going on. Maybe you feel that way about your spouse at some times. Now, I got to say to the ladies, sometimes when you ask your husband, what are you thinking? And he says nothing. That's actually true. Um, <laughs> that's actually, I mean, clinical studies have demonstrated that much of the time he is thinking nothing. So... And when you say, how was work? And he says, fine. That's, sometimes that's just like what he really thinks how the day was, you know. It, it, so I do need to say that. Before the fall, how was work in the garden, Adam? He would have poured his heart out in great detail, okay? After the fall, you're tired. You're worn out from the, you don't want to talk anymore. You've used all your words for the day. And uh, so it's not always hiding. Sometimes nothing means yeah, nothing. So you've got to be discerning on that one. So the next time your husband says nothing, don't say, get out from behind the bush, you hider. You know, it's not like that. <laughs> not like that. But the reality is we all do want to hide. Even with the people that love us best, know our faults, and that's my wife and your spouse, knows my faults and still loves me. I should feel the safest with her next to God. I should feel safer with her than anyone else. She has a track record of demonstrating it's safe to share with her. And yet sometimes... I don't want to be known for who I am. Why? Genesis 3, they hide. Number two, they blame. That's the second immediate effect. Verse 9, the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? 
And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid, um, I hid myself. Okay, we already read that. Uh, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Which is not the most direct answer to, did you eat the, tr- the, the, the fruit, you know? So God comes to Adam because he bears a unique responsibility in this relationship. They're both responsible for their sins. But for the marriage, he bears a, a leadership responsibility. And so God comes to him. Adam was commissioned to work. He was commissioned to keep the garden. Uh, he was commissioned to be a protector of the garden. He was to work it and keep it. The word keep does mean protect. So he was to be on the lookout and should have destroyed any talking snakes that came into the garden looking to talk to his wife. He should have been killing talking snakes, but the entire impression is she gives him the fruit. If you read the chapter again in chapter three, the the natural reading of it is he's standing right there. And rather than protecting her immediately when, uh, you know, he, he said, did God really say, bomb? He should have lost his head in that moment. He should have killed the snake, but he didn't. He stood by and, uh, and he watched. He was passive uh, when his wife was carrying on a dialogue with Satan. So when God asks him, have you eaten of the tree? Adam's immediate response is, it's the woman that you gave me. It's her fault. She was talking to a snake. This, she got this fruit and then I ate it. And then of course Eve, she doesn't really come off too great either. She blames the serpent. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So Adam said, God's coming to him, and rather than remove the, the figurative fig leaf and be open with God, he doubles down and says, no, that's her fault. She says, it is Satan's fault. Um, you gave her to me, and she ruined everything. It's really, he's charging God, really, saying, God, this is your fault. You gave her to me. He's forgotten all that the good God has done for him. He's forgotten the the beauty of paradise, he's forgotten, you know, oh, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. That's 11 verses ago, 12, 13 verses ago. Now he's throwing it under the bus, under the bus and saying, yeah, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's her. She is the problem here. How quickly he forgot. You know, I have in our outline, our story, the blame game. Not only do we hide but we blame as well. We're, it, it's, we're tempted to laugh at Adam and Eve because it's absurd. You're talking to God? Like he, first of all, get behind, he can like knows, knows you're there behind the bush. Uh, he knows you're, everything about you. You're not hiding from God. But, but uh, you know, so, so we're tempted to laugh at how absurd their excuses are. But I, I think we all, if we're honest, we all live here at various points. It's easy for us, a husband to think, you know, um, or for a wife to think, if my husband would lead better, I'd be more supportive. You know, if he would just take the lead and be active and be, he wasn't so passive and checked out, uh, I'd be much more encouraging. As soon as he starts doing something to encourage, I will be encouraging. You know, it's the husband you gave me, Lord. He's not worthy of my encouragement. that's, That's blaming um, he's not doing his job, you know. Um, if my wife would show some appreciation, if she would show some respect, if she would show some support, I'd be happy to talk and be open and be engaged, grow in our companionship and all that. But every time we have conversations about our thoughts and our feelings and sharing our life together, it, something always ends up my fault. And I end up getting criticized. So, Lord, I'm not going to go down that road. It's the woman you gave me. If she was easier to talk to, I'd talk more. But because of her. So it's always so easy for us to blame someone else. But I believe seeing ourselves in this story is essential because we need to realize we can't hide. God knows. He sees right through the excuses. He's not impressed. He's not persuaded. Uh, He doesn't go, oh, Adam, it was her. Oh, my bad. Yeah, I guess so. I guess, yeah, yeah, I guess it really is her fault. Let me go talk to her. No, God God sees right through all of this. Later, tomorrow when we talk about redemption, we're going to see that in Christ, 
we have nothing to hide. The answer to getting away from the hiding and the blaming is to come to Christ because in Christ we have nothing to hide. We're forgiven, we're accepted, we're welcomed before God. And what redemption does, what Jesus does by forgiving all of our sins and he who knows us best loves us most. Uh, When that happens, it frees us to not only be real with God but to be real with one another because there's nothing you can see in me that is so bad that God won't forgive it and that God doesn't accept me even in it, in Christ. And so it is in Christ that we really become free. It's the antidote. The gospel is the antidote to our instinct um, to hide and to blame. We'll talk about that tomorrow. But you can see at the, at the companionship, their companionship is shattered because of the fall, because they deny God's word, because they put themselves at the center. And the immediate results, we're gonna look at the curse, which has to do, some of it has to do with their marriage, But the immediate results are hiding and blaming before God and then turning, blaming one another, hiding from one another as well. Well, the next thing that happens is the curse. So God curses the serpent in verse 15. I'll put enmity enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So there's coming an offspring of the woman and... uh, he will crush the serpent's head. That, of course, is Jesus. So we get the promise of the Savior from the very beginning. Uh, so we, we see the curse on uh, Satan. And then the next curse, the judgment, is against the woman. Verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing and pain. You shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So there really, he says, there's two things, Eve, that's going to happen to you and all the daughters of Eve in the room as well. One, pain in, one, one translation says bringing forth children. This doesn't say that yet. Multiply your pain in childbearing. Uh, yeah, you shall bring forth children. In pain, you shall bring forth children. So two things. In bringing forth children, there will be pain. And secondly, there will be rivalry with your husband. So the curse immediately cuts to her relationships as a mother, uh, but then also the marriage with the husband. So uh, there's pain in, I've never given birth, but there's pain in childbearing. I've been present and seen it with my wife. But I think this curse involves more than that because though childbearing, uh, uh, delivering children is painful, it's only briefly painful. It's only briefly painful. The language likely indicates more suffering uh, for Eve and for all the mothers to come. And I think this affects marriage. That's why I'm going to talk about it just a minute here. Uh, But for some women, the curse means it will actually be hard to become a mother. So the whole mothering role and calling will now have pain attached to it. There'll be pain in birth. Um, There'll be pain if you cannot become a mother. Think about Hannah or Sarah or numbers of women in this room or in your church or in your family who struggle with infertility. Uh, before the fall, be fruitful and multiply, that came easily, evidently. There wasn't a problem because there was no medical problems uh, prior to the fall. But after, it's not always easy. All mothers will know pain as they raise children. Think about Eve. The next chapter says one of her sons murders the other, and the murderer will wander all of his days. She is immediately broken. Motherhood is a burden-bearing grief for Eve. I mean, I'm sure there was good times with the boys as well, but uh, it was burdensome. There was a pain that she would not have had prior to chapter three. Motherhood brings great joy, but it can bring great suffering as well. And I just want to acknowledge that tonight, that many mothers, and maybe you're one of them, know the anguish anguish of losing a child, maybe losing a baby, having a miscarriage, or losing a child later in life. Uh, many, many mothers know the experience of sort of not losing a child, you know, they're to death, but losing a relationship with a teenager or an adult child with whom you have a broken relationship. I mean, few things are more painful than that for a mother. Other mothers ache for a child that suffers physically or suffers mentally um, suffers with a disability 
or some challenge in life for which the mom finds herself crying herself to sleep at night for what her child endures each day. Some mothers know the grief of a child who's walked away from the Lord. After the fall, motherhood involves pain, and all of those pains and challenges are brought into the marriage. The father grieves everything I just mentioned as well. But in the curse, the mother has a unique relationship. She gives, she carries and gives birth to the children. And there is a burden that comes, and that burden comes into the marriage, and at times, by God's grace, companionship is the greatest gift in all those sufferings. One flesh is the greatest gift. But sometimes, couples struggle, and they don't do well. The struggling children and the pain that mom and dad feels harms the companionship. They don't navigate it well. They have different views on what should happen uh, in that situation. So she will suffer, uh, but it will also affect the marriage. There will also be rivalry with her husband. The fall distorts Eve's relationship with Adam. She was created to be his companion and his helper. But now the text says her desire will be, verse 16, contrary to uh, her husband. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So now there was harmonious complementarity. Okay, that's chapter two. Harmonious like this. We're together. Harmonious complementarity. Now we're going to be like this. There's going to be a rivalry. We're not this. There's going to be a rivalry for who's in charge here. We both want to be in charge. That's the fall. We don't want God to be in charge. We want to be in charge. And now that sin will, will, will enter and will make a challenge where God addresses this. This is going to be uh, after the fall, your curse is that you are going to want to uh, uh, challenge his leadership, lead in his place. He, he's going to be temp tempted to be, we'll see this in a minute, domineering or passive, and you're going to be tempted to lead in his place. Ortland says in his book that this sort of rivalry in the marriage, he says, this is the ultimate reason for our broken promises, our shouting matches, resentments, abuses, separations, divorces, and all marital tragedies. God gave us up to the powers of our own sinful confusion. These sad words about rivalry here predict our cycle of dysfunction whenever a wife steps in to fill the void created by her husband's failure to care and provide. With the husband resenting his wife for the implied criticism of his own passivity and silently or aggressively punishing her for it, each one aggravates the weakness of the other. As they spiral down into mutual incomprehension, bitterness, alienation. And this is a, a very, uh, I think, wise sentence. Both defiant feminism and arrogant patriarchy fall short of the glory of Eden. He says, after the fall, the defiant feminism that says to the woman, you rule in this situation, destroys the marriage. And the arrogant patriarchy that doesn't say, I want to lead as a, as a loving leader and care for you, but says, I rule in the man, that as well will uh, destroy the companionship. And yet that is the very result of the fall. The curse to the man in verse 17 as well, this, this is, goes directly at his work. You've, uh, because you've listened to the voice of your life, wife and you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. So in, in one way, um, women work, out, uh, some women work outside the home and have work as well as he does, they work, or they work inside the home, and men care for children. Fathers care for their children. So it, it, what he's not saying is, is all the kids are Eve's deal and the work is Adam's deal. We know that they, they cross, but identity-wise, the woman who carries the child and gives birth to the child has a unique, um, there's nothing like a mother's heart and there's something unique there. And Adam is called to work the field. He was originally called to work the garden. And so that's part of his identity. He has an identity as a father as well. I don't mean to say men aren't to care for the kids. He uh, disciple them. He does have an identity as a father, but he has an identity towards his work. 
keeping the garden. And now what he says is, your work will no longer be trouble-free. You used to get healthy crops. Now you've got thorns and thistles. You're going to work your behind off to get a healthy crop for something to eat. You're going to eat by the sweat of your brow. And now because of the fall, guess what's going to happen? You're going to have limitations. It's going to be hard. You're going to be weak. You're going to be sinful in your, in your work as well. And this is where I think his curse affects the marriage because he still has the same responsibilities for his callings. He still has the calling to work in the garden. He still has the calling for one flesh companionship with his wife. He still has multiple callings he's responsible for, but now it's going to be very difficult to, to manage them because you go to work and it's hard. It's frustrating. There's thorns and thistles and you come home and she wants to rule over you and you want to rule over her and you've still got to be responsible in all of that. And so now, not only everywhere he goes is difficult because of sin. And if we think, man, managing all my responsibilities, how am I supposed to be a Christian who loves the Lord? And I'm, I'm a husband, obviously. So a husband, a father, someone who works, someone who's involved down the church. How am I? It's really hard to manage all that, Genesis 3. Yes, it's really hard to manage all that. And we need redemption in Christ. Come, Lord Jesus. We need redemption in Christ. So you can see, oh, my husband is just, you know, he's so consumed with his job, it, it affects our marriage. That is so common. And you see it right in the text. Now, what used to be easy for you, you are going to, the sweat of your face, thorns and thistles, you're going to have supply chain problems, and you promise the customer, and it's not going to come up on time. And that guy's going to quit, and there's going to be a problem in IT uh, over here that's going on and someone is going to be late and this thing's uh, going to happen and you know everything about your job you if you're in the trades uh, and you are working with your hands you're going to have back problems or everything's going to be a challenge is what he says and so the after the fall life gets obviously very difficult life under the curse letter d Covenant companionship is no longer, comes naturally. Intimacy and vulnerability are strained. Rivalry is our marriage reality. Death is now part of our marriage story. Verse, uh, it says on, it goes on to talk, he talks about death. To dust you shall return, verse 19. Death is now part of our marriage story. Not just the ending of life, but weakness, fatigue, illness, hormonal challenges, emotional instability, and a thousand other trials. All these are what we face now because of the fall. So God's story to have this people that glorified him and live for his glory is now fractured and a cancer has entered God's story called sin. Now we know all of these various sins, pride and selfishness and anger and on and on. So we need to acknowledge, I'm not trying to be depressing tonight, we need to acknowledge the reality of the brokenness that comes into our lives because of the fall. Because when we acknowledge what is, that sets us up for the gospel. That sets us up to see our need for the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, the kindness of God that would rescue us after all of this. The kindness of God who would, uh, would be gracious to us. We must know the is, the way things is, <laughs> before we can have the can be uh, in the gospel. I just wanted to mention, and then we'll wrap up here, four common hazards that might give you something to talk about that I think come to our covenant companionship under the curse. Some of these are uh, implicate, some of these are kind of derivative. I'm not saying they're directly in the text, um, but I think they're, they're results. One is domineering or passive husbands. And I think that is implied in the text with the rivalry of what will go on. You know, you will seek to lead, but he will rule over you. In, before the fall, they were in perfect sync. But now, relational harmony is very difficult. And one of the things that for husbands is we tend to fall in one ditch uh, or the other. Some, some husbands live most of their marriage in one ditch. Uh, some of us can move ditch to ditch within the hour, you know, by the way. Uh, so uh, one ditch is domineering leadership. So it's to that rivalry, it's trying to quash that rivalry by exerting power. So husbands that lead this way don't bring tenderness but harshness. That's why in 1 Peter, 
Peter has to tell husbands, don't be harsh with your wives or you're not even going to get your prayers answered. That's how serious it is. We're to be tender, but we can be forceful, impatient, impatient, angry, um, harsh in that kind of thing. In worst case scenarios, this leads to, uh, you know, domestic abuse, grievous sin, grievous crime. Um, but that's where, that's where the far ditch ultimately leads, is a domineering that comes to not only emotional raising of the voice, but raising of the hand perhaps as well. So there's one ditch is it's being harsh, impatient. It, it, you can be domineering without being loud, by the way, too. You can just be very uh, determined and self-righteous and hard-headed the way, you, the way you relate with your wife, not being open and you know that kind of thing so one is domineering the other is passive and that's what happens in the garden is passivity with Adam um, it's laziness most of us wouldn't think of ourselves as lazy because we think I'm very busy I'm doing a thousand things but laziness or passivity is just failing to give ourselves to what's most important so laziness shows up in poor communication uh, not doing the work of having meaningful conversations with our wives uh, laziness or passivity is avoiding conflict uh, just to try to keep ease in the house. I just want my own comfort, so I'm not going to say what needs to be said because it might lead to a conflict. Um, or it's not doing the hard work of reconciling a conflict. It's just like, well, let's just forget about it and move on rather than go through the difficulty of. So that's all passivity, laziness. It's just easier to watch the game or get on the Internet or get lost in a book or do your hobby whatever it is, than it is to uh, engage meaningfully with my companion, my wife. Um, so those are the two challenges, domineering or passivity, that we face as husbands. And like I said, sometimes in one area we're very impatient and maybe angry, and, and in another area we just checked out where we should be involved. So that's the result of the fall. Another one would be unforgiveness or bitterness. Now I know that's not in the text for unforgiveness, but the fact that sin is introduced in Genesis 3 means there must be forgiveness for sin. There must be forgiveness for sin. We must, to have a companionship, we have to deal with this new thing that's in the relationship, the hiding, the blaming at all, and that requires forgiveness. And if there's anything that uh, hinders companionship, uh, it's unforgiveness. It is unforgiveness in our relationship. You know, um, holding something against our spouse uh, becoming bitter and our and bitterness clouds our vision we just don't see our spouse accurately when we are bitter you may say well I don't think I'm bitter I, I'm not seething with rage um, but it's not always just seething with rage it's just not believing the best about your spouse it's holding them to something they did before that they've asked forgiveness for but just holding them to that rather than seeing change in their lives and believing God's work. So how do you deal with sin? They have to deal with sin and often unforgiveness becomes this tremendous hindrance to our companionship. Another one would be other relationships. Now there's not a lot of other relationships at this time in human history, but they're coming. And sometimes we can look for companionship outside of our marriage. Guys can do this. Uh, ladies, I think, do the, can, can frequently be tempted, I would say, uh, this way um, as a lady you should have other Christian friends you should have women of God that you pour out your heart that you tell maybe most most things about your life to them you know one or two that you're very open with uh, so you need friendships you need someone who can bear your burdens and your joys together um, it may be appropriate to have someone older to pour into you and help you um, or for you to do that for a younger woman so that there's this openness and investing and this, this companionship with a lowercase c that you have. But if you're married, your girlfriends are not your primary companion. There's an exclusive companionship you're called to with your husband that is distinctly different from every other relationship uh, that you have. So God, you know, when he saw Adam's state of being alone, the answer was, was not, let's get some bros so they can all hang out. It wasn't like bring the dudes in and let's have fun, you know. And same for Eve. She didn't need just a bunch of other 
sisters and, and uh, girls, women that she could uh, relate with. Your husband is to be your closest companion. And husbands, you're to create, I'm to create that type of environment where my wife feels that I'm her confidant, where she feels my encouragement, where she has friends that she can talk to that bear her burdens, but she always knows she can come to me first and I'll be eager to bear that burden with her in, as a one flesh covenant companion. And sometimes other relationships, if we don't feel like we're getting that companionship in the marriage and we're not getting even emotional intimacy in the marriage, sometimes we can look for that somewhere else so we need to be asking husbands are you cultivating that kind of relationship with your wife the same is true with guys you're looking for you're looking for time with guys um, and sharing things with them you're not telling your wife maybe Um, that's wrong that's just wrong so other relationships can be a hindrance we can feel well I'm known somewhere just not as well known with my my spouse so we want to pursue one another in that a void in your covenant companionship can be a temptation to look for that connection elsewhere and uh, so we want to make sure that's happening at home I love this quote by Paul by Ray Ortland here he says in real terms uh, two selfish me's start learning to think like one unified us building a new life together with one total everything one story that's what you have as a couple one story one purpose one reputation one bed one suffering one budget one family and so forth marriage removes all barriers and replaces them with a comprehensive oneness it is this all-encompassing unity that sets marriage apart as marriage more profound than even the most intense friendship so i hope you have really meaningful friendships with deep fellowship profound years decades lifelong friends i hope that for everyone in the room But I hope every one of those relationships does not compare to what you have with your spouse because he's given you a covenant companion for life. Paul Tripp says, is your marriage partner the best friend in your life or has your dream of this kind of companionship evaporated? Well, if it has, I want to have hope in the gospel that God can restore that. And that man you're sitting next to, that woman you're sitting next to right now, he has so much more for you to grow closer uh, that what you may be looking for elsewhere um, which is not bad to have friends, but you may want to cultivate that so much more deeply with the person you're with. Another one, I talked, somebody asked about this after the first session this morning, but another one is a parent-centered companionship. Um, that can be a really hindrance to your companionship. Parenting is important. Uh, it is, it's the most, you're called to be fruitful and multiply. It's the most important thing you will ever do together outside of us. So outside of us, outside of your marriage, the most important thing you'll ever do is raise children. So it is important, but it is easy for those of you who have kids in the, you know, in the active years, young kids, elementary kids, even middle school and high school kids, it's very easy for the central relation, for your relationship to revolve around the parenting calling to where you, your companionship and your conversation becomes mostly uh, about the kids. And so now you're functioning not as a, uh, not, not sort of just companionship, us, our relationship, but you're functioning as co-parents, which you are, but you're, that's, that defines the relationship. And yet what your kids need most, and what my kids need most, is not for my wife and I to be the best parents, co-parents they need. They need parents that emphasize the priority of the one flesh companionship so that they see a marriage that represents Christ's love for the church and the church's response to Christ. And they see something that is so compelling they want that for themselves rather than to just say my parents are all about me and the whole family revolved around we were the sun and mom and dad were the planets that just kind of rotated around us. So you're, you're, we're not doing our kids. It's not good for our kids. It's not loving for our kids. It's not honoring to the Lord. And guess what? They grow up and leave. And uh, well, you, at least you hope at some point, you know. <laughs> and uh, one of the things that's sad, and everybody in this room has time. We've all got time. But uh, one of the things that's sad is that uh, to see a couple invest their whole life in their kids which is a holy calling and we should my wife and I invested I can't tell you we were parent-centered for sure at points in our marriage 
but to do that for your whole relationship, be about the kids and see the last kid leave and then look across the table and say, it's just us now. What do we have? What's been built? What, what do we share? What, what is our companionship like? Do you, do you know me? Do I know you? Are we connected? If we built something that's stable, that the primary relationship in the family was us, and then the, the secondary relationship was, was the kids, and sure, we spent plenty of time with us parenting the kids. That, that is an us project. But yet there was this sweet us that had nothing to do with the kids. And so if you're younger, bear that in mind. I've just seen a number of couples that get older and then like, what do we have? What do we have? And, you, and I pray that won't be the case for you as you build companionship over the years. And if that is you, you're older and kind of going, oh, we're kind of struggling. Um, hey, there's tremendous hope in the gospel. The Lord makes up for what's lost. And um, the Lord, grace, grace can give us a sense of, uh, grace deals with not only our present sins, but our, our past and our regrets as well. So there's always hope in all that. Last thing I want to say is that it's so powerful in this that there is hope in d- judgment. During this dark chapter of the Bible, and I'm at my limit, uh, my, my buzzer is kind of going off here, Daniel, but if I can say a little bit more, I hope that's okay. Yeah, thumbs up from Daniel. Recently this happened. I was preaching a sermon, and we don't, I got to say this, now I'm even going to go longer. I <laughs> I was preaching a sermon, and we're not a, uh, we're not a real vocal church. So my church is, our church is pretty Western kind of, uh, you know, quiet, not, not overly emotional. We're, we're somewhat diverse culturally, because some cultures are more expressive in worship. So we're somewhat diverse culturally, but even still, we're just quiet. And um, so I was preaching, and I, I, I had a conversation out loud with myself. I was going, just like I did right there, and then I talked to Daniel. I looked down at my clock, it's like, oh, I'm out of time. So I just said, oh, wow, I'm out of time. But I really want to emphasize this last point. And this lady shouts out, go on, pastor. And I looked at her and I said, ma'am, may your tribe increase. Uh, <laughs> praise God that somebody told the pastor to preach late, you know, this one time. She just shouted me out, go on. I mean, I felt so motivated. I just... Man, it was just powerful, and it all started from an internal conversation that I spoke out loud, and one bold lady who would go against the flow and say, I will speak out when the rest of you lame Christians are silent. So, <laughs> so uh, there's so much beauty in the judgment, because this is the darkest chapter, really, but there is hope. Think about a few things that are hopeful. One is that God delays judgment. He said in the day that you eat, you will surely die. And death does enter at that point. Their bodies begin to die in that moment. But God doesn't kill them. God does not kill them in the moment. They're not instantly killed. He spares them death when they break his law. And they have hope for another day. And then listen to this. The next verse after we read all that, by the sweat of your face, um, dust uh, for you, you know, you are dust, you'll return to dust. The next verse, verse 20, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. So death comes and then Eve gets this name that life is coming. She's the mother of all that. There's going to be true life come through her offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring life and will overturn the power of death. But there's going to be generation after generation after generation. God doesn't just, you know, kill the whole thing. She is called the mother of all the living. The woman who, you know, assaults the throne of God and says, I want control of this universe. The husband that passively supports that and then eats himself to verify that he wants control as well. She gets named the mother of life is going to come from you. I just think that's the grace of God in this situation. The second thing is that God covers the couple. He says, get rid of your fig leaves and and God kills some animals and provides skins for them. The next verse, after she's the mother of all the living, the Lord made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and he clothed them. So this is God, uh, this is the first time we see in the Bible uh, an animal killed to cover the guilt of God's people. So he covers their their body with the animal skins. It's a precursor to the sacrificial system that animals will be slain for the forgiveness of our sins and ultimately that points to Jesus. And then lastly, God promises redemption. From Eve's offspring 
will come one who will crush the serpent's head. So in the middle of all this is this glorious verse, uh, the curse of the, of the um, serpent. There will be enmity between your, offspring, your, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus is called the second Adam. So God's going to bring a new Adam and a new creation in Christ. And we see that hope from the very beginning. The curses come. Their companionship is difficult. Their one flesh relationship is divided and hard. But God um, gloriously is a redeeming God. And he will grant them grace and will ultimately send Jesus so that all of our marriages where we know hiding and blaming and control all this he will redeem us and forgive our sins and give us the Holy Spirit where we can live for his glory I want to lead it on that note of hope Ray Ortland says at the end here the most remarkable thing about marriage today is not that it can be troubled but that we still have this privilege at all When God justly expelled us from the Garden of Eden, he did not take this gift back. He let us keep his priceless gift, though we sometimes misuse it. Your marriage is a priceless gift from God that you sometimes and I sometimes misuse. But what every married couple needs to know is that their marriage is a remnant of Eden. This is why every marriage is worth working at. Every marriage is worth fighting for. A marriage filled with hope in God is nothing less than an afterglow of the Garden of Eden, radiant with hope until perfection is finally restored. So there is hope in the midst of that. I just had to say something about redemption so we just didn't go out here depressed. Uh, But there is hope in the midst of the darkness. The curse has come. The fall has come. This is the way it is. Uh, And yet God is gracious to us and hope has come. So, Daniel, we had set 20 minutes, but now there's only 10, so I don't know what we... Do you want to go 10 minutes minutes over? This is an an audible here because I went long. Go till what? Say 15. So take 15 minutes like we did this morning. Here's the questions on the back, uh, back of your page, the four questions. Uh, Probably in 15 minutes, you might just pick one. You might be able to get through one of them. If you get through one of them... um, do another one so whatever you can do but why don't you take 15 minutes find a spot have a discussion and then I suppose someone will call us back together okay thank you